Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox, and I would like to welcome you to the newest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network from the Editor's Desk, a podcast where myself and Dave Leefort, Editor-in-Chief at Compliance Week, unpack some of the top stories which have or will appear in Compliance Week each month. We look at the top compliance stories, talk some sports, and generally try to solve the world's problems. In this episode, we take a look at some of the top stories that appeared in Compliance Week in July of 2021. We also have special guest, Aaron Nicodemus, who talks about his great five-part article series on whistleblowers in honor of National Whistleblowers Day. Dave and I conclude with thoughts on Simone Biles, her mental health issues at the Olympics, and take a preview of what's coming up in Compliance Week in August. Know you'll enjoy this podcast from the editor's desk as a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to the newest edition of the Compliance Podcast Network from the editor's desk, a podcast where we unpack some of the top stories which have been or will appear in Compliance Week, look at other top compliance stories, talk some sports, and generally try to solve the world's problems. I'm your co-host, Tom Fox. And I'm Dave Leefort, Editor-in-Chief at Compliance Week. Tom, I am thrilled as usual to be joining you here, uh, to be bringing you some of our top stories from the past uh, few weeks, uh, and also, as always, to talk sports. There's a lot there uh, this week in particular. Uh, But in today's episode, we are going to look back at some of the things that Compliance Week has been talking about in July. We're going to visit with uh, CW reporter Aaron Nicodemus on his outstanding series on whistleblowers, uh, and then we're going to wrap it up with some sports talk. So, Tom, I will hand things over to you to get us started. Sure, Dave. Uh, As usual, a great uh, series of stories, and I can't wait to visit with Aaron in a little more detail about his whistleblower series. But uh, from your perspective as the editor, what, what were some of the top stories in CW and what were some of the stories that uh, attracted the most interest from your listener and viewership? So I, I want to point out a few of them, actually. And one of them actually happened at the end of June, but it's it's sort of gained its continued steam and interest throughout July. So this is one that is important to a lot of people. It's so it's when uh, FinCEN um, tipped its hand at some big changes ahead. Uh, they announced their first government-wide list of priorities for AML and countering the financing of terrorism back in late June. Um, and now, of course, they had to do this pursuant to the Anti-Muttering Act of 2020, passed as part of that big uh, defense bill earlier this year. Um, so essentially what they did was they outlined the, the sort of the, the priorities that as they see them in FinCEN's efforts to improve the efficiency and effectiveness of the U.S.'s uh, AML regime, um, which, you know, ha- does not have a great track record. So this, this is something that has a lot of our, our readers talking. Um, so. It's essentially, you know, I'll, I'll list, they essentially listed eight priorities. So they, they want to deal with corruption. Um, and FinCEN cited President Biden's memo establishing uh, combating corruption as a national security priority. 
So another big one, and obviously one that's been in the news a ton, is cybercrime. So that's that's a big priority going forward. I don't think I need to talk any more about that. We all know the risks that cybercrime uh, cybercrime um, poses, especially in the area of AML. Um, terrorist financing, both international and domestic. Uh, fraud was one of the eight. Um, transnational criminal organization activity. Now, with a particular focus on Mexican and Russian operations in the U.S. Um, drug trafficking was one of them. Human trafficking and human smuggling was one of them. And then last one was uh, pr proliferation financing and proliferation support network. So that's that's when you know the, a global correspondent banking is a principal vulnerability and a driver of the of the proliferation of finance risk within the U.S. due to its role in processing U.S. dollar transactions. So that's uh, that's sort of the 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 rundown that the uh, that were that FinCEN. Um, gave in June, and what we've the reason why I bring this up is that so so we published this story on June 30th, and it's gotten sort of consistent traffic in conversation throughout the month. So it'll be really interesting to see to see where this goes where this goes next. The other the other story before I hand it over to Aaron for um, for a data privacy story is uh, actually this one's data privacy as well, but TikTok. Uh, you, you, I don't know if you've noticed, but last week, at the end of last week, was fined almost a million dollars under GDPR for children's privacy uh, violations. Now, this comes in the wake of Twitter getting its first fine under GDPR. Both of these fines, so, so these are sort of, you know, uh, GDPR taking aim at big tech. So, you, so that's the, the sort of big picture headline. But when you look at the fines, you know, less than a million dollars in both cases. So this is this is less than pocket change for companies like uh, TikTok and and Twitter. Um, and you know, if, if comparatively uh, for the for similar uh, for similar violations and similar findings by the U.S. FTC, uh, TikTok was fined nearly six million dollars and was ordered to implement stronger age verification measures. So the US, which has a really incredibly poor federal data privacy regime, they, they still find TikTok nearly 6 million, and yet you know, GDPR is, is, is finding TikTok less than a million dollars. So all signs continue to point to GDPR not really having the teeth that, were, that was predicted of it um, back when it was, uh, back when it sort of first began a few years ago, and it's uh, it's sort of too bad because I think there were you know among among data privacy advocates there were some pretty high hopes, um, but so far we haven't really seen them uh, to come to fruition. Um, the last story I wanted to point out was one written by one of our guests today, uh, Aaron Nicodemus, about Colorado's. Uh, new data privacy laws. So whereas nothing is really happening on the federal level in terms of data privacy, Colorado became the third state to enact a, a privacy law. So what I'm going to do is just hand things over to Aaron for a minute here to explain what sort of what is what are the what are the similarities and or differences between the Colorado law and 
you know, the, the law, the, the laws that were already enacted in California and Virginia. Sure. Thanks, Dave. Um, so, yeah, the Colorado law is very modeled, very much modeled on GDPR, um, as you were just discussing. It's um, it's taking a, uh, a very aggressive approach to protecting the privacy of, of, of its citizens. Um, but there's a couple of key differences between Colorado and, say, California's law that um, privacy advocates are, are, are honing in on. The biggest of them is that the Colorado law, and, and unlike a Virginia law that passed earlier um, in 20, or later in 2020 and in 2021, um, it doesn't provide a private right of action, which means that the uh, any cu customer, consumer who feels their data has been compromised by a company, they can't sue in, in federal court. They have to rely on the attorney general in their state to advocate for them to file lawsuits, to do investigations. Whereas in California, that law allows customers, consumers to file a private right of action in federal court. And um, you know, nearly a hundred different lawsuits have been filed since the California uh, law passed, uh, went into effect in the beginning of 2020. Um, those uh, uh, lawsuits have to be very focused on um, data breaches, so they can't talk about some of the other violations of the CCPA, but they can sue and they are suing. And that is a uh, was a real sticking point for a lot of states considering data privacy laws, whether or not to allow this private right of action. Uh, so Tom, that, those were those were some of our top uh, most talked about stories uh, from July. Dave, I was wondering if you might be able to give us a teaser of any stories you and the team are working on for the August issue. Yeah, so for August, uh, I think um, Aaron will talk here in a minute about his whistleblower series, which is going to extend into August. Uh, but also in August, we've got a few things that I wanted to bring up here. We've got an interesting survey right now that is out in the market about uh, ESG and what the role of compliance is playing in ESG. And we've got a lot of interesting responses so far that, have, that are, are really telling us that, you know, compliance, just like any, just like the board, just like really anyone else within any organization, is still playing catch up a bit on ESG and still has a lot to learn. Um, so we've got some results of an interesting survey that we're gonna be reporting out in August, along with some, uh, some best practices advice on, you know, if, you're, if your ESG program is immature and the majority of people have indicated in our survey that that is the case, that this is very, they have very immature ESG programs, um, what can you do? Um, it also addresses the how to make sure your your own company isn't um, greenwashing or sort of making sure it's doing what it says it's doing in terms of um, environmental initiatives. Um, so that will be that'll be a pretty interesting piece coming out in August. Um, the other thing we've begun work on that uh, will probably hit the site in August. Uh, is our annual Inside the Mind of the CCO survey. It's annually, it's one of our more, uh, it's one of our most popular um, content packages. And it really gets at like, what are, what are the challenges facing chief compliance officers and those who work for CCOs? It's, 
it sort of takes, uh, it's almost like a, a temperature check. Uh, how do, you know, if we talk, if we talk about it in terms of benchmarking, it's, you know, benchmarking yourself. Um, you know, what is, you know, we ask questions about salary. We ask questions about what are your current biggest challenges? What are the things that you're being asked to do now that, that you were never asked to do previously? Or what about your job has changed uh, due to the pandemic? What are your post-pandemic plans if we ever do get to a post-pandemic world? So, well, that, so that survey will be released in August. And I think there's a chance that some of the results will be released toward the end of the month as well. Um, so we're really looking forward to those two things, as well as the continuation of our, our whistleblower series into the beginning of August. But one other thing I wanted to mention about August is that Compliance Week is having a, uh, an open house for the entire month, which means all, all content for the month of August will be free. Um, so all, the only thing we ask you to do is to is to register, which means you'll be a a, a recognized uh, logged in user. Um, but once you once you register, you'll get access to to any of our archive content and of course all of our new content in August. To sort of it's an opportunity for people who maybe haven't checked out Compliance Week to uh, to do just that um, for an entire month. So I would suggest to those of who those of you who um, have yet to check us out to take an opportunity in August to do that. Sign up for our daily newsletter or check out our homepage a few times or, you know, just maybe read one of our, our case studies or Aaron's whistleblower series that he's going to talk about. And um, so we're excited about that, too. It's we we try to do this um, annually, uh, at least for uh, a month or so. I don't I don't believe we did it in 2020, but we did it in 2019. Um, and uh, it's just sort of a an entree to compliance week for those people who, you know, don't want to uh, break out the credit card and pay for something they haven't seen yet. Um, so yeah, those are really the big things. Well, Dave, that's uh, that's great on the open house. And for our listeners, we're going to link to in our show notes, how to uh, gain access during the month of August for the open house. So if you're not a compliance week subscriber, I'm going to urge you to do so. I'm a subscriber and it's uh, one of the great resources in the compliance community and to really demonstrate that uh, we now are gonna bring on, back on Aaron Nicodemus. Aaron is in the middle of uh, posting a five-part uh, blog series or article series, I should say, on whistleblower. So Aaron, uh, first of all, formally, welcome to the podcast. Yes, thanks for having me, Tom. So Aaron, um, as of the recording of this podcast, we're to uh, part three of your five-part series. So, of course, I've read uh, each part and I uh, really wanted to know what was the genesis of this series and and could you describe your approach to uh, each of the whistleblowers you're highlighting in your series? Uh, sure, absolutely. Um, so, the idea for this came about when I was talking to a whistleblower attorney, Mike Roniker of Constantine Cannon, about whistleblowers and how difficult they had it. We were talking about a story that I was writing on how there were some changes coming down the pike for the uh, security, I'm sorry, the SEC's whistleblower program. And he was just, as an aside, he just said, you know, these whistleblowers, they have it so hard. They're isolated. They get retaliated against. No one believes them. No, people try to discredit them. Uh, it has, it really, horrible impacts on their personal and professional lives, and yet they step forward 
on behalf, in many cases, of for total strangers to, to try and right a wrong or to try and stop a fraud. And so um, they're brave people and they're putting their reputations on the line and, and in some cases their, their careers on the line to bring these um, you know, frauds uh, into the light. So I can start uh, with, with the whistleblower who I thought had the most compelling story. Um, they were all compelling, the five of them, but the one that I thought was the most compelling was, was Aaron Westrick. He's a whistleblower with, he, he was the um, research director for a, a bulletproof vest company called Second Chance Body Armor. And he had discovered as the research director that some of the vests that Second Chance was manufacturing uh, lost their effectiveness. When they went out the gate, they could stop high caliber bullets, but in normal heat and humidity, they would degrade and lose their effectiveness. And he was obviously concerned that someone was going to get uh, shot and, and the bulletproof vest was not going to do its job. Um, and he found out that the material that was being used, what was causing it was called Xylon manufactured by a company out of uh, Japan called Toyobo. And so he started sounding the alarm within his company. But the company was getting ready to go public. 70% of its sales were in these lighter, more flexible vests made with Xylon. And they, were, they had no interest in pursuing this, even warning people, never mind recalling the vests. They just, they saw a financial calamity on the horizon if they paid attention to Aaron Westrick. And so they didn't and they isolated him, they kept him out of meetings, and eventually they fired him. Um, and after they fired him, he filed a false claims act in uh, the state of uh, Michigan, and he was able to uh, bring the company down because they saw there was no way that they were gonna be able to continue to operate if they couldn't sell their most popular vest. And they quickly filed for bankruptcy and stopped selling the vest. So, um, and there's a whole lot of other things about his story that were interesting that are in the series and you should check it out. But uh, he was actually saved by a bulletproof vest and then he turned around and uh, saved a bunch of other officers from, from getting hurt by these defective ones. So it's, it was a really interesting story. Another one was this guy, Brendan Delaney. He was a whistleblower with, within the New York City um, prison system. He was tasked with rolling out an electronic medical record system uh, throughout the prison system, which included Rikers Island. Uh, it's about 10,000 prisoners altogether. And he wanted, he was noticing and he was hearing from some doctors and other medical professionals that this system that was manufactured by eClinical Works out of Massachusetts had serious flaws. It was causing prescriptions either to be filled double or not at all, or for the wrong person or for the wrong dosage. Um, and then other issues cropped up with uh, diagnostic tests that were just disappearing, um, not being fulfilled. And so he would bring the concerns to his manager. His manager would say nothing or would poo-poo him and, and dismiss his, his concerns. And then, um, you know, he, he tried to escalate it to the division, uh, sorry, the Department of Investigations within the city. And he couldn't get any traction there either. And so he eventually filed a a lawsuit to try and uh, bring the issue to light. And he had a lot of uh, obstacles placed in his path. But in the end, he was right. And I, I think that's the main 
point of the series is that these people, every all five of them, had a truth that they wanted to get out there and they were not deterred by retaliation, loss of income, loss of job. Um, that was the result of them blowing the whistle. Aaron, was there anything that uh, surprised you in researching this series and writing it up? You know, I think the thing that surprised me the most is just how isolated these whistleblowers are. I mean, because of the way that the process works, they're anonymous. So that's to protect them from retaliation. But in many cases, what it also does is it prevents them from telling anyone, even their, their closest friends or, or even their spouse, that they are blowing the whistle. And this is the reason why so many bad things are happening to them um, at work or in their uh, career. And yet, you know, they're, they, they, they forge ahead with their uh, truth telling, and yet they can't really tell anyone why. And so every one of them, I think that I spoke with, were relieved, I think, to sort of tell their story because they've been holding it in for so long. I mean, Aaron Westrick, it took him 18 years from start to finish to, to, to blow the whistle. Um, Brendan Delaney took seven years. Uh, another whistleblower, um, Jeff Smith, took five or six to get uh, to the end of his, his journey. It just takes a long time. It's very stressful. It's very isolating. And to me, I, I guess I just didn't know how uh, traumatizing being a whistleblower was until I spoke with five of them. Aaron, uh, you may touch upon this in uh, episodes or parts four and five, but I did want to ask from, once again, your research and, and writing this series up, do you think we need greater protection for whistleblowers? I do. Um, some of the stories that I'm going to write next week uh, delve into this, but even in the, the last part of the series, uh, there are a couple of things that whistleblowers uh, really deserve um, in their uh, it, for protections and, and anti-retaliation protections are a big part of it. Uh, Senator Chuck Grassley out of Iowa just filed a bill that would expand protections to any employee. Right now, the law is the False Claims Act as it's written says anti-retaliation protections only cover current and former employees, but at least three of the whistleblowers I spoke with were never actually uh, um, employed by the uh, group that they were blowing the whistle on. And so they, they didn't actually qualify for these anti-retaliation protections. So the law needs to be changed and it's literally just making it uh, for any employee, not just one who's connected to the company that they blew the whistle on. Um, another is uh, the anonymity that whistleblowers get really should be sacrosanct. And it, with the SEC's program, the whistleblower's name is never revealed, okay? It's not revealed during the investigation. It's not revealed after the investigation is over. Even when they make the, the award, they never identify the whistleblower. If the whistleblower wants to come forward and, and give his or her story like, like these five did, that's fine, but they're allowed to keep their anonymity. With False Claims Act, the whistleblower is identified at the end. The case is opened and they're identified and they know this, so, um, so they're on board with it. But there's a part of the process where an FCA uh, 
action can be dropped by the Department of Justice, and then the case can become unsealed, even though it hasn't been settled, and the whistleblower's name is exposed. And that happened to Brendan Delaney, and to, to pretty disastrous consequences for him in his professional and personal life. Well, Aaron, I wanted to uh, congratulate you on this series and also thank you for, for writing uh, this up, certainly in this uh, week that we're all focusing on national on whistleblowers and National Whistleblower Day. It's been a great series and frankly look forward to, to seeing where you take it down the road. Thanks. Thanks. I, I had a lot of fun and it was a great, um, it was an eye-opening experience and I, I hope um, some of that insight um, came through. Well, Dave, we're now at the point where uh, perhaps we save the world, uh, but we do so through the uh, medium of sports. So lots Ready to talk it. about. Um, I am in, as you know, Texas and the University of Texas and the University of Oklahoma look like they're going to bolt for the SEC. And a lot of people have been asking me about this and kind of what are my thoughts and feelings. And I guess the... Um, of course, it's about the money, but what I see, Dave, is really a complete now realignment of college football, perhaps even away from the, the NCAA model, and we're going to move towards some new super conference uh, or conferences of what it looks like. I don't know, but the only thing I am, am competent in predicting is things will look much different in two or three years than they looked over the past five years. Where do you kind of see all of that from your uh, vantage point? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I'm here in the Northeast where college football isn't nearly as big a deal as it is in your neck of the woods or, you know, especially not in the South, too. But I think you're right. This is sort of, I mean, I don't want to say the beginning of the end, but it's the, so the NCAA, let's, let's get that this out front. NCAA really has no control here. This is really the, the uh, the CFP, the, the College Football Playoff Committee, uh, and also these in the conferences, which have these giant TV deals. So what you have is Texas and Oklahoma, they're they're going to jump to the SEC, and of course now you have Oklahoma State saying, well, what about us? What about our rivalry with Oklahoma? And you have Texas A&M saying, well, that's not fair. That you know we thought we owned the state of Texas and the SEC, and and again, it's all about money and so you know now once the once texas and oklahoma jump what's going to happen now to the big 12 that's i mean is that would you still consider that a power five conference probably not uh you know and then then you get the the acc on the east coast and the the pack sorry the pack 12 on the on the west coast uh you know who's to say that the sec and the acc aren't going to decide to to merge to form a you know quote unquote super conference and then the Big 12 and the Pac 12 merge to create maybe the West Coast version of the of the super conference and then you know what happens to the Big 10 what happens to Notre Dame and you know it's all it's really everything is you're right when you say that in 2 to 3 years the landscape's going to look much different uh, there will be fewer conferences and fewer conferences that matter honestly because everyone's going after the money and nobody wants to be left behind in a conference that all of a sudden doesn't matter anymore so uh so yeah it's all it's all sort of a mess i mean it's you know what what they could do i mean again you know if one of these if i were in charge kind of a thing or if anyone was in charge 
of the entire thing is you you create uh, sort of a you know uh, an East Coast conference, uh, a Central conference, a West Coast conference that are all sort of equal in power. Um, but then you also have the the smaller conferences to you know you know honestly no one from the AA the American American Atlantic Conference is ever going to make a uh, a college football. They're, 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 they're never going to be, it's never going to be a power conference. They're never going to make a national title game. It's, it's all the same teams. You could pick 20 teams, put them in, you know, three separate conferences based on geography, uh, and then create a, uh, I don't know, let's call it a 12 team playoff, four teams from each con. I, I'm, I'm sort of just spitballing here, but it's, but this is what we're heading towards. We're heading towards a, uh, an environment where these teams in these conferences, they have all the power and they're going to be the ones that decide how a champion is crowned and which teams are aligned with with which conferences. And so the NCAA is that doesn't really matter here. These are these are conferences that are making these decisions. These are team there are universities that are making these decisions based almost exclusively on TV money. Um, and it's kind of crazy and it's not, uh, I don't know, it's not what is, it's not, is, it's not what's best for the fan. And it's really, really not great for these smaller conferences and smaller universities, even someone like Boston College, uh, you know, D1 school currently in the ACC, uh, you know, maybe five, 10 years ago, they were in, they were a pretty consistent top 25 team. Um, you know, as it looks right now, they're, they're second tier. They're never going to, I shouldn't say never, but it doesn't look like they have a path toward viability again. And so it's going to be very difficult for any team that is currently outside this, you know, power 20 or power 25 teams to, to sort of break into that because all of the, you know, if you're a legitimate college prospect, and now you can get paid to be a to be a prospect, by the way, uh, you're going to flock to these teams that are already established. And so, it's really the the consolidation of power among very few in college football, and it's going to be the detriment to to fans and to you know a lot of these smaller teams and smaller schools and smaller conferences. Do you what do you think? Do you agree? Am I am I off am I off base here? No, I really think uh, you've articulated where we are now, and um, I've been thinking about this a lot, and no one at a university ever asks, is this what's good? Is this good for college football? They ask, is it good for my university? So yeah. uh, until we can kind of move past that, I don't think we're ever, or I think we're headed down the road w with some sort of super conference uh, with uh, the playoffs that I think everybody wants. Um, but a lot of traditional go out the window, uh, that's for sure. So um, it's going to be interesting to see how it develops. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're right in that, you know, it's it's a consolidation of power and it's all about money. And these universities and the conferences are the ones that are holding all the cards here. I mean, they're, they're you're, you're right. They're making decisions based on their own self-interest. And as long as that's going to be the 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 way business is done is college in college football, then that it's going to be to the detriment of of parity. It's going to be the, to the detriment of 
any kind of even playing field that one would expect. So Dave, um, now I'm going to ask a question that uh, at one point was more in your neck of the woods, and I'm going to preface it with the following. I'm a huge Tom Brady fan. I have uh, three signed Tom Brady helmets. I have uh, wow. five New England Patriots replica Super Bowl trophies. Um, but I, leave, I, I, I say all that to, to emphasize I'm a huge Tom Brady fan, but here's the question I want to pitch to you. Is he always pissed off? <laughs> so first off, uh, I didn't realize that this was going to be an intervention. Thank you, Tom. Um, so I didn't realize you were such a big Tom Brady fan. That's uh, wow. I would say that is uh, that's a surprise to me. Um, I've always been a Tom Brady fan, but I'm in New England. So all of us here are. Uh, but yeah, so to answer your question, yeah, of course, he's always pissed off. That's that's how is that's his motivation. Uh, you know, if you were just picture yourself, if you're if you're Tom Brady, you've got seven Super Bowl rings. Um, how do you motivate yourself? And you're 40, what is it, 43 years old? You know, I'm I'm older than 43, not much older than 43, but my uh nothing works the way it used to work. I know Tom Brady's got his TB12 method, but it's harder to to get in shape, it's harder to stay in shape, it's harder to not get injured. Um so his motivation has to come from somewhere and it's that it's that fire that he has and what stokes the fire is that feeling disrespected so i think he was on lebron's uh what was it the barbershop show lebron has i forget the name of it i'm sorry um but he said talking about his free agency last year uh and sort of lamenting the fact that you know he thought there was going to be more interest in him um so he said one of the teams, uh, I think his quote was, they weren't interested at the very end. And I was thinking, you're sticking with that mother bleeper. Uh, so he's probably talking about a team sticking with their current quarterback instead of choosing him. So it's, you know, it's pretty, I don't know. I, I personally, from afar, would find it hard to, to, be, to be offended by that. Uh, but that, that's, how he, that's how he keeps the fire stoked. And you have to, uh, I mean, one, you have to admire it because that's, that's what keeps them going. Um, but I wouldn't be, if it were me, I don't have, uh, I obviously don't have the temperament that Tom Brady has or the ability to stay as focused or as motivated, uh, singularly motivated to win, but it's got to take a lot of fuel. And that fuel oftentimes comes in the form of like, of retribution or hate, whether it's real, perceived, made up. He did this all the time in New England. It was it was consistently, you know, we're we were underestimated. We were that no one believed we could do it. And in reality, it's like, well, you know, you were the favorite going into the season. So who exactly didn't think you could do it? It was I mean, part of it too comes from Belichick sort of staying on him and throughout his entire career in New England. Um, you know, Belichick didn't cut him any breaks, didn't do him any favors, treated him like everyone else. That I think that helped to to keep to make sure that Brady's motivation stayed where it was and his uh, his fire um, was always stoked. But yeah, to answer your question in a not so brief way, yeah, he's always angry, just like the Hulk. When uh, when when Mark Ruffalo in the Avengers says, "You don't want to want to know my secret? I'm always angry," and he turns into the Hulk. So it's you know. I, I picture Tom Brady in that same 
uh, in that same scene, sort of putting putting on his helmet and then turning to the playing field. Well, regarding the intervention, all I can say is just because I'm sober doesn't mean I'm well. Um, <laughs> now let's move on to the uh, to the Tokyo Olympics. And I originally thought when I sent you some topics today, we'd have a kind of a wide ranging discussion of the Olympics during the era of COVID-19 and what it costs and what it means. But as we were now recording this, I would really like to talk about Simone Biles. And uh, we're recording this on um, Wednesday. And yesterday, on Tuesday, she um, uh, pulled out of the team gymnastics competition because of a mental health issue. And uh, it's not clear today whether or not she's going to participate in the individual uh, events, gymnastic events, which she's qualified for as well. But um, there, I, I didn't know how the uh, social media reaction would be, but I, from what I see, it's largely supportive. And um, uh, it, it was certainly, a, from my perspective, a very gutsy move on her part, uh, because she is someone who has generally been thought of as one of the world, current world greats in just gymnastics, and to have uh, a, a crisis of confidence that uh, a lot of other people have a lot more often than athletes at that level, uh, I think uh, really drove home a message that we all need to, to listen to, listen to our bodies, listen to our minds, and uh, ask for help when you need it. And if you find yourself in a situation that is putting either your physical health or mental health at risk, you need to extricate yourself from that situation. So um those are sort of my initial thoughts what were your thoughts so pretty much i mean pretty much very similar to yours and in my my initial reaction was wow this is this is really a uh a landmark moment for taking uh the stigma away from uh from people with mental health issues like it's you, like you can't i can't imagine the type one, the type of pressure that she's under. She is the number one athlete in this entire Olympics. So there's there's that pressure alone. Like so, she she must feel responsibility not her, not only to her teammates, to the U.S., to I mean to NBC, to her sponsors. I mean there is an incredible amount of pressure just there. And then you know you take into you take into account that she also is carrying the weight she was i think uh and i i think this i think this is true she is the one of the last remaining active gymnasts that were part of the um sexual abuse um scandal with with gymnastics and, and larry nasser so she's she's also carrying she's carrying that around too and on top of it all she's being asked to to do something that for anybody else in the world would be uh, incredibly dangerous. And, you know, doing uh, gymnastics and especially the vault and the bars, like trying to to do what she does. And I'm not, I, I can't name the, the particular twirls or the moves. And I just know that any one of them could break her neck at any time. And so be, and so she, her saying that, hey, you know what? I am not myself today. I'm feeling, uh, I'm feeling a little bit anxious or really stressed out about this. And knowing her body and knowing herself, that 
you know, she's she's being having the courage to extricate herself from that situation is is amazing. And I think extremely admirable and something that I think kids who are watching this and or who are I, I had this conversation last night with my kids. Like, well, why they asked, why isn't Simone Biles? Is she why isn't she performing here? Why isn't she competing? Is she hurt? And, you know, my wife and I explained like, no, she's just not she's not feeling up for it. She's not feeling mentally in the right in the right place. And that, you know, when you're not in the right place to to do something like she's being asked to do, she's making a smart decision here to not put her to not put her, you know, essentially put her life on the line. But, uh, you know, I, I know that some people are disappointed and say like, oh, but but shouldn't we be teaching our kids to 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 stay mentally tough in these types of situations to overcome the adversary adversity? But this clearly was not one of those situations. Uh, so I think uh, I'm with you. I think it was incredibly admirable and really a victory for, you know, the destigmatization of um, uh, people with mental health issues and the people that go through things like this, especially with how much pressure there must have been on her. Um, obviously, or perhaps not obviously, but I drew a parallel with uh, Naomi Osaka pulling out of the uh, French yeah. Open uh, for mental health issues. And if I could even add uh, the recent European Cup finals where three English footballers missed penalty kicks and the literally the abuse they took on social media um, made me think back to a 1996 World Cup, I think, where Italy lost the World Cup literally on one penalty kick by their top star, and that kind of marked him forever. And it's, I just think it's so unfair to define one athlete by one mistake uh, because of the incredible pressure they're under. But I guess, Dave, the, the thing about the Simone Biles that I really took away is the point you hit on. It, it really destigmatizes this, and I hope that everyone listening will, will understand that if they face those issues just in everyday life or in the workplace, that they'll ask for help. And that if, if someone asks for help, if it's to you or to me or to anyone else, that who will be available for help and point them to professional help that they can get. So that I, I really hope it helps take away from the stigma of those of mental health issues. And, and even in the workplace, almost every uh, company has some sort of uh, employee assistance plan and so I hope that people will uh, take the advantage of using that if they need to. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. Um, I wouldn't add a thing except to say that, you know, if you can't put yourself in anyone else's shoes. So if you if you're attempting to evaluate, you know, you know, maybe Simone Biles really should have went through it for her teammates. She should have done it for them. You, you're not. That is uh, that's not fair. It's not fair to do because you can't, you cannot put yourself in anyone's shoes. Forget if it's Simone Biles. It, it could be anything and anybody. Uh, you know, you cannot put, you cannot feel, uh, you can't, you cannot understand how someone else is feeling. Um, and so, when for 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 Simone Biles to to do what she did, which is essentially pulling out the biggest, pulling out of the biggest event uh, of her life you have to, you know, you have to imagine it wasn't just uh, on a on a whim or it wasn't, you know, any any small decision for her. Um, and I'm really glad of I'm really glad for her and for 
everybody really that uh, that she did set this example. I think this is a better example to set than if had she gone out and you know scored a had a perfect score or whatever that looks like in gymnastics and won a gold medal. I think the example that she set here by pulling out would be stronger than anything she could have done on the floor. Dave, I don't think Atticus Finch could have said it any better. Um, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. So uh, as I said a little bit earlier, we're definitely are going to link to uh, the open house opportunity at Compliance Week in our show notes. And so Dave, I'm uh, gonna say thanks for joining us. I'm Tom Fox. And thank you. Uh, I'm Dave Leifort. Please join us next week. Oh, and thanks again to Aaron Nicodemus for joining us this week. Uh, we'll see you next time. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of From the Editor's Desk, a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. I hope you will join Dave and I on the last Friday of each month where we get together to take a retrospective look back of what's appeared in Compliance Week and what may be coming for the next month. If you are interested in how ESG intersects with compliance, check out my new podcast, The ESG Report, also appearing on the Compliance Podcast Network.